doctors who dosed him with concoctions made from herbs, dried vipers, and the skull of a hanged criminal would surely have finished him off had his father not intervened. While still a tiny baby, he had been taken to live at Saint-Germain-en-Laye near Paris, where his father, deprived of his crown, maintained an embittered shadow court. James's childhood had been spent under the eye of his father's quarrelsome advisers, who thought of little else but how to restore their master to his throne. To them, James had been the blackbird, the undersized and unnaturally quiet child whose black hair and eyes and dark complexion made him look like a gypsy. He had been sheltered, kept away from other children, his delicate health guarded by his hovering mother and his mind formed by choleric tutors. Few children would have flourished in such an environment. The grave young James was driven deeper inward and absorbed his father's mood of sombre resignation in the face of adversity. He was dutiful but cheerless, and on reaching young manhood he appeared to observers to be utterly lacking in vigour and resilience. By the time he was nineteen in 1707, his father had died and James himself inherited the burden of kingship in exile. He called himself James III and the Eighth. His father had been James II of England and Seventh of Scotland, and he listened gravely to his father's advisers when they counselled him to invade his kingdoms and right the wrong that had been done in 1688. James believed, with some reason, that his subjects would abandon their loyalty to his half-sister Queen Anne and support their true king once he appeared before them in person. Reports reaching Saint-Germain-en-Laye indicated that James's Scottish subjects were particularly eager to welcome him, for many Scots resented the recent union with England that had left Scotland deprived of sovereignty and underrepresented, so they argued, in the English Parliament. Ever since James VI of Scotland became King of England as James I in 1603, the two kingdoms had been ruled by the same monarch. In 1707, by a treaty of union ratified by both governments, the two kingdoms became one, and Scotland lost its political autonomy. Encouraged by the state of affairs in Scotland and by the fleet of ships and 6,000 soldiers provided by Louis XIV, then at war with England, and eager to take a hand in stirring up civil war there, James set off for the coast early in 1708 to lead the invasion force. But even before he set foot on board his flagship, things began to go wrong. The admiral in charge of the thirty privateers and five men of war, the Comte de Fourbin, quarrelled with the commander of the soldiers, the Comte de Gasset. The weather was forbidding. And James contracted measles, forcing the vast assemblage of ships and men to wait idly for days until he recovered sufficiently to be carried on board. At last, the expedition got underway, at James's tremulous insistence, only to be forced back by a gale which did damage to the fleet and to the general morale. A second attempt brought James and his soldiers safely to Scotland, but Forbin, who was convinced that the entire enterprise was ill-advised, could not be persuaded to land there and risk the lives of the French troops. The fleet was harried by an English force, with thirty-eight men of war. Beyond this... The thousands of faithful subjects James had expected to greet him once he came in sight of the coast were nowhere to be seen. Dejected, James returned to France, mournfully blaming the failure of the mission on his own ill health, the foul weather, 
and mistakes in provisioning and navigation. His ever-suspicious advisers murmured that Admiral Forbin had been acting under secret orders from King Louis not to land at all. "'We saw the person called the Pretender land on the shore,' wrote an English prisoner, captured during the expedition after seeing James come ashore at Dunkirk. Being a tall, slight young man, pale, smooth face, with a blue feather in his hat and a star on his cloak. There were no shouts of Vive le Roi to welcome him back. Everyone was very mute, and the pale young man with the blue feathered hat most silent of all. James had begun to call himself the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, a romantic appellation with crusading overtones, and for the next several years he devoted his energies to building a military reputation. He was a brave young man.